welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Tariq Megarisi. Tariq is a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR, the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's a political analyst and researcher who specializes in North African affairs and politics, governance, and development in the Arab world. And I'm pleased to say he's a regular contributor to our Arab Digest podcast. I've asked him in today to update the situation in Libya. Delighted to have you back, Tarek. Thank you, Bill. It's always a pleasure to be here. In September, a new UN special representative, Abdoulaye Batali, was appointed. He's Senegalese, so someone from the continent, which can be viewed as a step forward. But what else can you tell us about him and the task he faces? Well, the task he faces is, is, is pretty monumental. But, you know, I should say as well that just being from the continent isn't necessarily a step forward in, in and of itself. Uh, you know, Libya has a, a storied history with its sub-Saharan uh, neighbours uh, and with the African Union itself. So, you know, there's no reason just by virtue of his nationality that he is um, going to necessarily be any better than the uh, American, Europeans or Lebanese um, who have come before him. But, um, you know, what can I say about him as a person? Probably not much, because I haven't actually met the guy yet. Although, if you're listening, this is a, a good invitation for you to uh, to give me a call. Um, because I have, you know, I've had a good relationship with, with, some of the, with some of his predecessors. And I can see already, you know, uh, similar patterns forming um, to, to how some of his predecessors handled the job. He's come in in quite an embattled time, like the, the UN has a terrible relationship, a terrible reputation on the ground. The last process that was started earlier this year to try to get elections back on track is, is stalling and stagnating. Um, and as I said in the, in the opener to this, to this question, the guy has a monumental task in front of him because he has to get this you know stubborn, criminal, self-serving elite within Libya uh, to agree to a process forwards and a process that might see them lose the familiar world which they have uh, and, and which has great corruption potential for them. And then at the same time, he, he has to move uh, a similarly stubborn, self-serving international milieu uh, to back his process, to back this plan for change rather than to, to undermine it or, or to simply ignore it. The big difference I see from Batali as, as opposed to some of his predecessors is that he's he's coming quite slowly. He said very clearly that he is in, in listening mode in the early days. He's tried to speak to to as many Libyans as possible. And if we kind of read the tea leaves of his statements thus far, we, we get the impression that he is kind of invested in trying to bring out Libyan voices and, and Libyan desires, uh, which is something which is kind of just been ignored all around for the for most of the past eight years so so that is promising what might hamper him in that is that he seems to be taking this very inside out uh, approach to libya which was also done by one of his predecessors uh, hassan Saleme, whereby they believe that the problems are within libya and only solvable by this libyan group and so they're going to fully focus on them and and ignore the international sector which which can be pretty dangerous Mm. Yeah, um, the, the U.S. ambassador, Richard Norland, has commended Batali's efforts to get peace talks between these various Libya factions moving. Um, it, it is kind of a rogues gallery, isn't it? Uh, the Beba, Bashaga, uh, Haftar. But can you lay out for our listeners 
give us a little more detail again, remind us about these factions and the challenges that uh, Batali faces. You know, it's kind of funny to, to, to talk about them as factions because the more you speak about all these different personalities, um, the more similar they kind of sound, right? You know, in, in traditional uh, conflicts of this kind, you have different camps, different constituencies, maybe political ideologies. But here they're kind of just, you know, a bunch of of misfits um, who are united by a desire to to kind of have absolute control over the country and to use that to, to just loot the country drive rather than, you know, to advance any kind of political system or plan or, or, or community within it. So let's start with the Prime Minister, um, Abdel Hamid uh, Dabeba, uh, and it would be wrong to just single him out. So let's include, you know, his broader family in this because they are all heavily involved. He is the current Prime Minister sitting in the capital Tripoli, head of what they call the Government of National Unity, uh, which was formed by uh, a former UN process two years ago almost now, which um, appointed this government in order to to lead the country towards elections. Uh, these elections, safe to say, didn't happen. Uh, and ever since then, you know, he's probably most well known for a horrendous level of corruption. Um, like, you know, Libya's governments have always been corrupt. But but this one really takes the biscuit in all manner of ways. Uh, you know, his his cousin, who is uh, very present within the government, is is often known by the refrain of Mr. Forty Percent within Libya, which should should tell you all you kind of need to know uh, about how government finances and procurement and, and large construction tenders have been used. He is nominally backed by Turkey. Um, you know, Turkey have been helpful in in consolidating the security uh, sector of Western Libya in general, uh, and they have helped to protect the capital, it seems, especially when a, a rival prime minister, Bashar, tried to to seize control. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are, I think, differences between Debeba and, and the Turks. And, and we've seen Debeba now kind of try to, to set up his own or to empower uh, armed groups, uh, which he hopes will be more loyal to him uh, than than to anyone else going forward. And really, I think Debeba sees himself as there for the long haul. He he keeps trying to push the buck entirely onto his rivals in the, in, in the parliament to say, you know, when they can sort out a, uh, an electoral track and a, and, a, and a free and fair election, then I'll hand over power, uh, probably knowing full well that it's not going to happen. And and that kind of pushes me nicely onto the, the two parliaments. Um, so Libya is cursed with uh, split parliaments. One, the, the House of Representatives, uh, which is the main legislative house, is based in the Far East, uh, is under the command increasingly of, of its speaker, Aguila Saleh. And there's a high council of state, which is kind of a, a rump parliament uh, invested with, with oversight powers, uh, which is currently headed by a guy called Khalid al-Mishri, uh, who is from the the Islamist camp of of Western Libya. And, you know, again, these two much like the Beba, have been pursuing entirely self-serving goals over the past year. They've kind of hijacked the UN political process with the help of the Egyptians and have tried to to turn the conversation away from, from one about elections and how we can make elections happen towards, uh, well, can we appoint our own government to get rid of the Beba that we can have more control over? Can we reappoint what is called the sovereign position? So, you know, the head of the central bank, the head of the investment authority. And, you know, there's no secret that that, that these have potentially highly lucrative dividends for them. 
So yeah, they have kind of dominated the path forward, stringing along the UN, stringing along others by saying, oh, you know, we're so close to an agreement on a constitutional basis for elections, just give us one more week or just give us one more month. Uh, and the Egyptians have been, um, you know, fully complicit in, 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 in helping them to do that because there is a tight relationship between Cairo and Aqila Saleh. A close one has formed between Cairo and uh, Khaled al-Mishri, despite him being of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, and they would rather see their proxies in power or to try to give them as much chance as possible to enter power and to displace the Beba who is, who is closer to Turkey than in, you know, in any other outcome. Um, the last kind of camp I'll, I'll comment on quickly is, is the Haftar family. Uh, and I call it the family now because, uh, Daddy Haftar, uh, the field marshal Khalifa, famous for his wars in, in Tripoli and Benghazi and Darda, is, is, not really checking out, but he is um, slowly becoming less and less the focal point of attention. He still clearly has political goals. Uh, he's been touring the country recently, uh, talking about how um, Debeba needs to leave Tripoli and, 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 and how his army will be the voice of the Libyan people, the kind of vehicle for the Libyan people to reclaim authority and, and all of this other empty rhetoric. Uh, but in the meantime, his his children, namely two of his sons, Saddam, and Belgesim have been trying to kind of form their own working models going forward. Um, so both of them have been kind of trying to work either through Bashaha or through Debeba to agree a broader national deal that would allow the status quo to settle down in a way that is that is favorable to them. So yeah, as you can see, it's a uh, it's a really messy bunch. Um, they all kind of want one thing. And that one thing which they want, which is the preserving this kind of lawless status quo, which allows them a route to absolute power and, and an absolute fortune, is the one thing which Batali is invested with getting rid of um, through an electoral process, through a political process. Uh, and it's the same thing that all the Libyan people seem to want. And just to remind us, Tarek uh, Bashaga, he's presented himself as as an alternative prime minister. Have I got that right? Yeah, and uh, the fact that I haven't mentioned him in this kind of breakdown of of relevant actors, I I think speaks for itself in the sense that he was originally the prime minister appointed through a, a highly contrived process by the House of Representatives earlier th this year, and was kind of the first iteration of this attempt by Aguila Saleh to to claim executive power. Uh, but he has proven himself to be a kind of feckless prime minister or, or, or someone who is completely incapable of, of either seizing power or of kind of inspiring a constituency to back him and claim that he should be a legitimate prime minister. So he's kind of sunk into the shadows a bit. He could make a reemergence uh, if talks over a third government or appointing a, a new prime minister and a new government don't come to pass. Uh, he's currently hiding out in Benghazi. He does have cabinet meetings of his, his rump government over there. Uh, but yeah, they're just not very influential or involved. Mm. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, Turkey and, uh, of course, President Erdogan and uh, Egypt's President Sisi had a cordial meeting at the World Cup in Doha, apparently arranged by the Qataris. We're told Libya was on the agenda. What sort of impact could this apparent reconciliation have on the Libya front? Well, I think we we enter very much into the realm of of hopeful speculation when we kind of start to discuss this, because I wouldn't say so much that it's it's a reconciliation yet. I think that the two still have a very long way to go. 
And even if they are reconciling, um, then yes, this would have tremendous potential for Libya uh, because these two regional actors are, are really the key to to getting any progress on Libya. And it kind of makes sense that, that uh, this happened in Doha. Uh, you know, the Egyptians even earlier this year, after one of Bashar's failed attempts to, to seize power, went to the Qataris to try to get them to mediate. And so they are slowly coming coming back into this file for better or for worse. But, you know, the two still remain kind of at odds. Um, so they're in a phase whereby, at least at this very senior level, they're speaking pleasantly. But from what I've heard, that if you trickle down into the broader systems, they still don't really speak with each other, especially about uh, Libya. Egypt is is fully advancing this highly ambitious goal to try to kind of seize control of Libya, essentially to, to render it a, a client state. They believe that they have overwhelming influence over the parliament. They have leverage over Haftar and his army, and they would like to solidify control over the executive branch. They have been extremely kind of belligerent towards Debeba and the government of national unity. Uh, I mean, their foreign minister kind of stormed out uh, of the Arab League summit being hosted in Cairo when the Libyan foreign minister, Nejla Mangouche, took control of the session or took the chairmanship of the session as part of the rotating presidency. So you can see you know, how how highly rejection they are of um, of Debeba and his government. Uh, and Turkey, on the flip side, is, is kind of doing the same, but from a more uh, comfortable position and, and doing it a lot more competently than the Egyptians are. You know, the, the Turks don't don't run the political process, so they've extricated themselves from, from the bad optics of that. Uh, but they do dominate the scene in Tripoli, um, security-wise, economically speaking. Uh, and they are kind of building out networks and branches towards eastern Libya, where, where business already flows quite well. You know, they've invited Aguila Saleh and, and, and other members of the parliament over to Turkey quite a few times now. And, you know, Turkey is in this comfortable position and, and they're a bit paranoid of, of the Egyptians and of the Western actors as well, of, of trying to undermine them. So we have this gulf between them. And if they can bridge it, then I think that would unlock a political process or, or perhaps even a way forward, shall we say, because it's, it's probably just as worthwhile for us all to ask, you know, whether two autocrats, well, actually, that's not entirely fair, whether... Uh, whether one autocrat and one very powerful and repressive president um, would uh, agreeing on, on something would, would actually unlock anything better for the broader Libyan public who have been quite clear in their, in their desire for a progressive way forward, an inclusive way forward and a democratic way forward. I'm just thinking too that the uh, Qataris, of course, have, are, are proffering lots of cash to the Egyptians and equally are promising some bailouts for Erdogan, who is in financial difficulty. So perhaps uh, that could be a carrot as opposed to a stick. Uh, but but again, I mean, this this idea that foreign powers dictate the future of the Libyan people kind of must must cause a fair amount of, of angst and even, even resentment. Um, but let me ask you this. Turkey has a deal with Libya on sharing uh, East, an East Med gas field that's annoyed the Egyptians, uh, amongst many others. Uh, do you think the deal will survive, given these conversations that are going on between Sisi and Erdogan? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that the, these deals which are being made are, are there for the long haul. Um, and that kind of 
resigned frustration in your voice in, in response to the last uh, question kind of sums up much of the mood of, of much of the Libyan people towards having their country's future entirely in, in other countries' hands almost. But yeah, I mean, look, the, the deals is, will survive. Uh, I think we should be careful with language here because we are kind of treading on a on a thin path which has been kind of purposefully laid this way by the Turks. So what we have technically are memoranda of understanding. This is what was signed uh, a couple of months ago, which which kind of gives, which opens up the door for for more active participation on kind of Eastern Mediterranean gas, um, or not even Eastern Mediterranean, just off the shores of the of of, of Eastern Libya, um, which kind of broadly speaking just open up the doors for much closer Turkish Libyan cooperation across many fields, but notably oil and gas, and this builds upon the deals signed during the war on Tripoli, I think in December 2019, which formed a, um, a security pact, which has been ongoing since, as, as well as an agreement on an exclusive economic zone and maritime boundaries between these two countries. Uh, and the real controversial aspect of this is that the, the maritime zone effectively acts as if Crete doesn't exist, which you can imagine kind of annoys the Greeks quite a lot. And if we look at the kind of memoranda that was signed recently uh, and the optics around it, the stories around it, you know, I think you can make quite a solid case to say that this deal and how it was announced and signed was more about Turkey antagonizing the Greeks um, and putting on a big show for a domestic audience, especially as, you know, we continue building up to elections in Turkey, rather than actually anything substantial or, or, or solid within Libya. Uh, the memorandum itself was was very loosely worded and it didn't provide much and you know this um not not even the the excavation but the kind of surveying uh of waters and and searching for gas there it's it's something which takes a long time uh to even set up let alone to enact so it's not something i'm sure will will be realized anytime soon but you know he's uh, Erdogan certainly achieved antagonizing the Greeks who have been kind of almost farcical in their outrage since and kind of games that they've played with the government in Tripoli to, to show their discontent. I didn't think he expected this to annoy the Egyptians quite so much, uh, but it was really kind of a fire under the Egyptians which, which bolstered their rejection of, of the GNU in Tripoli. Um, but if we kind of try to zoom out and, and look for how this might solve things. Um, I think gas and and kind of sharing the not even so much the the drilling and the excavation of of natural gas, but in how that gas is sold, either through pipelines or through LNG terminals, will probably be, or it seems to at least be, the most practical foundation for any Turkish Egyptian deal, uh, given that this is kind of the solid dollars and cents interest of both of them which is which is shared you know business does on go does go on between um turkey and egypt or regular business but looking forward you know with with egypt's huge lng facilities turkey's wish to to kind of build a pipeline you can see that that convergence there and, and where the agreement might take place and and more than any practical discussion on libya it seemed that when sisi and, and erdogan met the main key was kind of trying to unlock um, Egyptian resistance to having Turkey join the the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum, uh, who and you know apparently Cairo has been the main block to that, and and this would be kind of a huge step 
in deconflicting the area and at least getting Turkey in and around that same table as, as Greece and Cyprus and others. Mm. I want to ask you about the, uh, the national company, NOC, and the chairman tweeted on Tuesday that force majeure in oil and gas exploration has been lifted. NOC is open for business, he said. Should we take his tweet at uh, face value? I think so. I mean, I think that this is it's part of a very clear push um, by the Debeba government, uh, the GNU, which has been going out on, on multiple levels for, for quite a while now to to kind of normalize with them. You know, let's not treat the GNU as a temporary government. Let's treat them as a real government, as a permanent fixture almost. And as you know, Debeba kind of hoovers up oil sales and, and oil proceeds, which are always very... Uh, um, not guaranteed within Libya because uh, Haftar controls the oil and, and they are often cut. Uh, I think he's now searching for for new mines to to mine uh, for for new fortunes to steal. Um, and so you know you hear a lot of stories that um, he's pushing hard internationally to try to get Libya's frozen assets uh, under its Libyan Investment Authority to get this this frozen asset lifted so that Libya can spend them again. And this, um, in terms of, of surveying new potential fields and, and striking new deals, potentially even building towards new concessions, again, this is something which takes a long time because the oil industry moves slowly but promises much as a return to this. Um, but I think it's also kind of an inducement by Debeba to, to perhaps go to the Brits and, and others and say, look, you know, BP and Shell... Uh, used to be hunting for new fields, especially around the Gulf of Sirte. Why don't we bring them back in? Perhaps also as an inducement on top of this memorandum of understanding with with Turkey that we just spoke about. And this could actually be a substantive new step if we see Turkey's national oil producer to, to start bidding or uh, receiving contracts there. And as we get, you know, a new government in Italy as well, and we have a Europe which is, you know, generally throwing out all values or strategy in the hunt for, for short-term gas supplies, perhaps we can see the GNU seeking to use this as an inducement towards Europe. So on a, on a big picture, this is all about trying to normalize the GNU and, and stick them there for the long haul. Uh, whether it will work or not remains to be seen. Yeah, I guess the question too is because Haftar, as you mentioned, I mean, he controls the oil fields. Is he going to go along with this? I think he'll be kind of happy with this because it will give him far more leverage uh, over over the GNU, because really the, the oil weapon is, is the last card which, which Haftar has to play. He can no longer try to attack Tripoli. So, yeah, I think he'll let it uh, develop and it will provide him with, with greater leverage. I mean, Haftar is essentially pursuing a similar policy, uh, just using migration instead of, instead of oil to, to get that European support. You know, more and more migrants are leaving the shores of eastern Libya towards um towards Europe and it's quite transparent that this can be a, a play by by Haftar and to to get Europeans to formally engage with his Libyan national army and then de facto recognize it so yeah a similar game played by by different parts and different actors mm. and the migrants being just a pawn in that game um, very yeah. difficult situation Algeria now Algeria like Egypt has a long border with Libya. What sort of stake do the Algerians have in seeing a solution to the, the current situation? I mean, they, they, they have a huge stake in it, much like the Egyptians, actually. You know, the Egyptians will always turn around and say, 
we are the most important foreign actor in Libya because we have this long border. And so for us, uh, Libya is, is a national interest. And, you know, they went so far down this path as, as even saying that Sirt, you know, a city in central Libya is a red line for them. As if, you know, one country can have a red line in, in the middle of another country. But Algeria has exactly the same concern. They just haven't leveraged it quite as as savvily as the Egyptians have, um, perhaps because, you know, it's it's not really their style. They're a lot more quiet actors, but of course, they've also had their own domestic concerns uh, for the last few years. And so now we see kind of Algeria returning to the Libya file, something which remains hugely important for them, especially as, you know, they they seek to, to use the current situation to to increase oil and gas sales to, to Europe and, and to leverage the the political benefits of that. But, you know, they've come back to Libya after a few years and they've realized that this this problem has become far too internationalized for them. Um, I don't think that they really believe that they can make a difference now. So it seems that they're really just kind of taking sides, uh, trying to push back against, um, against Egypt's encroachments into Western Libya. And for them, they seem to be viewing and engaging with Libya less as, as Libya and and more as kind of this regional problem which they're stuck in, whereby they see, you know, a very aggressive alliance under the Abraham Accords between Morocco and Egypt, squeezing them from both sides, Egypt making encroachments in terms of trying to develop influence both in Tunisia and in Libya. Uh, And so Algeria is building a strong relationship with the government of national unity. And, you know, they have uh, sought to, to enhance business ties between Algiers and Tripoli, uh, I think they encouraged Debeba to to also return to Tunisia and 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 try to inject some cash into that unstable economy, and so it seems like they are trying to now just consolidate and 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 to build out their own base of influence once more. Um, I think asking for anything more than that or expecting anything more than that would 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 be too much over the short term. But it's most certainly one to watch as 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 Algeria starts to to build itself back out as a regional major player. Mm. Yeah, now, uh, let me ask you about Europe. And uh, are, is there any kind of consensus emerging that would be helpful in moving matters forward for Libya and the, and the Libyan people? Yeah, yeah. We, we seem to be doing the rounds of, of all the countries here. And it's, you know, the analogy which I use more and more um, when when people ask me about the kind of diplomatic efforts going on on Libya is that it's, it's kind of like herding cats, right? You try and get a few um, a few countries to build consensus and cohesion and then a few others drift and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, maybe two years ago we would have been speaking most about the divisions between France and Italy. Uh, but now we see a bit more cohesion in Europe and our real split is, is as we were saying before, between Turkey and Egypt. So in in Europe, there is a developing consensus. Uh, Unfortunately, they seem to be most united by by nihilism than anything else. You know, this kind of belief that, sure, we would love to have elections happen, but we just don't really see it as as something that's going to happen anymore. And even if they don't say that publicly, you you, you can really kind of see that in in their engagement and in their reactions and in their statements. So they are now all truly hoping for, for Batali to announce a process that they can get behind and I think until then, we'll see more attempts to build a, a common European position, perhaps. 
Um, and when we talk about areas of, of cohesion and, and, and unity, I think what is really encouraging is that across the board within Europe, but also within the United States, which, which you know, doesn't really treat Libya as a serious issue, uh, we see an emerging consensus that um, the, the Libyan elite, you know, all those actors we spoke about before, are actually not partners going forward in the sense that they cannot be relied upon to get to elections. So they're going to have to try to figure out another way to, to either push them to elections or to get elections to happen if they really want to see elections. Uh, and then in the meantime, they are they're trying to make the most of, of the status quo. You know, we see some actors building out towards Tripoli. Paris is, as usual, being very active um, across the board. And I think they are trying to to invest heavily in where they see the ability to make gains today, which which could well be in the security sector. But yeah, we see a lot of activity, a lot of action, but I think uh, a dying hope or a dying belief that, that they actually will get to elections. And, and so they're kind of surveying what they can do instead. Mm. Now, finally, Tarek, you and I have talked on this podcast about Libya several times, and I usually end by asking if you're optimistic, and you usually and quite rightly reply, not very. But let me ask you again, uh, with this new special representative, uh, Batali, in place uh, and settling in, and outside players perhaps starting to get on the same page, are you feeling just a little bit more optimistic? To be honest, I, I, I really dislike this kind of framing or this this look of something that you're either optimistic or pessimistic about it. Um, and I get asked this question a lot in terms of how you, you, you see things progressing. The reality of the situation is that there are trajectories and we can see very clearly that the trajectory of Libya is, is going downwards. You know, if you look at the current dynamics today, whereby Debeba is digging in in Tripoli, uh, you have an interminable political process going on between uh, the heads of the two parliament uh, who lack influence, lack power, but but really just want to divide the country between themselves with no clear vision for how they're going to do that. And of course, Haftar kind of Haftaring around the country. It looks like we're going to head back towards redivision. And I think you certainly see the the early stages of that developing, especially in eastern Libya as they look to to kind of finance a, a new redivision. But it doesn't have to be that way, right? Uh, the trajectory is downwards, but in every year, in, in every scenario, we have opportunities or, or points in order to turn this around. And I think you picked one, you picked the most prominent one, quite rightly, in, in how you asked the question, which is the fact that there is a new special representative. Uh, he's going to have a big burden on his shoulders, perhaps worsened by the fact that um, he is, he's quite new to the file. But certainly, uh, if he can kind of try to reinvigorate a political process to kind of see through the the um, the guff, uh, for for one of a less polite term, uh, of the two speakers of the parliament and and the kind of Libyan elite who dominate the the political process to kind of try to figure out a way to cut through that and to get elections back on the agenda in a in a firm way, uh, then that could definitely turn the trajectory of this around. You know, if the French can can kind of build out their work on the security sector to start moving towards military unification, that would certainly turn things around and and restrict the space for for political actors to use militias for their own means. Um, if the United States could could develop the political will to really advance this plan, which they had 
previously talked about, but perhaps wasn't the best form plan in the world to kind of throttle the finances um, that are going towards the GNU and towards the other political actors uh, on the basis that, you know, there's horrendous corruption going on and they, the, all of their le- legitimacy is questionable at best. Then again, this could be a really powerful force to kind of incentivize all the political elite towards elections. So the, tra- the trajectory is bad. Um, it's bad because Libya's political elite are extremely selfish. I mean, I really can't emphasize enough how how grotesque this whole thing is. Uh, I mean, if you look at the the Arab barometer um, recent results, I can't remember the exact statistics, so I encourage you to go and see it for yourself. But it's, it's 50-something percent of Libyans apparently believe that they don't have enough money to feed themselves for a month, which is is striking you know anybody who knows libya who knew libya before the revolution as well would would not believe this because bread is cheap and and abundant and you know libyans were always comfortable um so to see what's become of the country and the fact that you know all of these political actors who are so far detached from the population that they don't even claim to have constituencies anymore um, are, are still arguing about things like sovereign positions and and uh, trying to pass the buck onto one another is 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 really a grotesque show to see being being played out. But uh, yeah, the trajectory is bad, but there are opportunities to drive things forward. And Libyan people have agency. International actors have agency, and so yeah, we've we could be optimistic. <laughs> we'll call it. Uh... Cautiously pessimistic. I heard that phrase used by someone, uh, one of the uh, coaches in the World Cup. He was cautiously pessimistic. Perhaps that would describe you, your view too. That's a good way. Tedek, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Tariq Megarisi, a policy fellow with the North Africa and Middle East program at the ECFR, the European Council on Foreign Relations. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, contributors like Tariq. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees, and subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you are a student or academic, check if a university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access the Digest for free. And if not, ask for your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law. Editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.